this is sort of jumping off the page to me like this is impossible that they would be able to get away with this it just it seems so unlikely that something like this could fly Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. Since the early 2000s, tobacco use has declined steadily, and in some cases very sharply, nearly everywhere in the world except China. According to the World Health Organization, tobacco use for people 15 years or older declined globally from 34% in the year 2000 to 23% last year. In India, that rate fell from 55 to 27%. And in Brazil, the rate fell from 34 to 13%. But in China, tobacco use has remained relatively stable, falling just 1% in the last two decades. A new piece of investigative journalism offers one key explanation of why China has been such an outlier to this global trend, namely the political influence of China's national tobacco monopoly. My guest today, Jason McClure, is a correspondent with The Examination, a new nonprofit investigative news agency focused on global health. He is one of the authors of the report detailing the ways in which the state-run China National Tobacco Corporation successfully undermined tobacco use reduction efforts in China. Among other things, this includes a remarkable story about how the China National Tobacco Corporation was able to manipulate the Chinese language translation of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, a landmark 2003 treaty negotiated at the World Health Organization. The article is titled How China Became Addicted to Its Tobacco Monopoly. I've posted a link to it in the show notes of this episode. It is well worth your time. The Examination is a new publication, and if this article is any indication, it is going to be a vital resource for those of us in the global health community. As always, feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. This episode came because a listener suggested it. I do love hearing from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatches.org to reach me. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Jason McClure, correspondent with The Examination.
So how do tobacco use rates in China compare to other countries around the world? Yeah, so that's really the genesis of our approach to this article was we looked at tobacco use rates in the world over the last 20 years. And globally, tobacco control has been fairly effective over the last 20 years. The global tobacco use rate has fallen from 34% in 2000 to 23% in 2020. So that's a decline of 11%. However, in China, the rate fell from 27% to just 26%. So in 20 years, just a decline of just 1%. And there are other countries like the United States and India where that decline is even farther, even larger than 11%. Yet China tobacco use rates have remained... relatively stable over the last 20 years, which is kind of surprising, but less so after reading your investigative report. Yeah, this is really kind of an interesting facet to this is that uh, tobacco use rates, as we mentioned, around the world in general have been declining, some countries a lot more so than others. And generally, wealthier, more industrialized countries, you've seen greater declines in tobacco use rates. But also in a number of countries in the developing worlds, there have been quite significant declines. You know, when we were looking at ways to compare China with other countries, we compared them with the BRICS nations, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, just from an economic perspective, they're so often lumped together and compared with one another. And really China's performance lagged those of the other BRIC countries substantially. And it's doubly interesting, too, because over these last 20 years, as China's boomed economically, one would think that that might translate into lower tobacco use rates and having tobacco use rates on par with other kind of wealthier countries. But that's certainly just not the case. No, that really hasn't been the case. And in fact, you know, we really focused our reporting on China tobacco, the state run monopoly, and just from a business perspective, the tobacco company has been extremely successful at capitalizing on China's growing wealth, its growing middle class. It has successfully essentially moved its consumer base up market and sold them more and more expensive premium cigarettes over the last, especially 10 to 15 years. They've made sort of premiumization a focus of their efforts, and they've been very successful at doing that and getting people to move up from packages of tobacco that cost maybe 40 or 50 cents a pack to those that cost three, four or five dollars. There's even super premium brands in China that cost as much as $20 a pack. So let's dive in on China Tobacco. It's the China National Tobacco Corporation. And your reporting shows authoritatively that China's persistently high tobacco use rates can be tied directly to this company. So what is this company? How does it work? explain the CNTC to listeners who had never heard of it. There's a bunch of different ways to describe China Tobacco. Its official name is China National Tobacco Corp, but we'll just call it China Tobacco for short. So it is a state-owned cigarette monopoly, and it is by far the world's largest tobacco company. It produces more cigarettes every year than the next 13 transnational tobacco companies combined, right? So more than Philip Morris, British American Tobacco. There's another company called Imperial Brands, Japan Tobacco, et cetera. I saw in your reporting, it's almost 50% of all cigarettes produced every year are produced by China Tobacco. That's right. China as a whole consumes 46% 
of the world's cigarettes, at least in 2022. It'll probably be a little higher than that this year. China tobacco has 96% of China's domestic market. It also is increasingly looking to expand overseas. So how does it work? Who operates it? And what does like the monopoly look like in practice? So I'll give you just a really quick history of the company. So after the Chinese Civil War in the 1950s and the communists took power, previously British American tobacco, which was founded by this guy named James Duke, who was kind of like the Henry Ford of cigarettes, they controlled a lot of China's cigarette market. The communists take power in the Civil War and basically they nationalize all the private cigarette factories within China. And then in practice, most of these cigarette factories are placed under the control of Chinese provincial governments and provincial communist parties. So they're, they're state-owned, but it's, it's a very chaotic marketplace where each province, even each individual city has its own cigarette factory. And oftentimes these are small, inefficient players, and they compete you know, vigorously with each other. You know, local authorities in one city may set up certain obstacles to keep cigarettes from another city or another province from being sold there. So there's kind of this chaotic state-owned marketplace. And by the time we get to the 1980s, Deng Xiaoping is in charge, who many of your listeners will know is a fairly outward-looking leader of China. And he saw that this was no way to run a tobacco monopoly. And I think he probably foresaw that over the years, China would face competition from external companies that were much more efficient and sophisticated. So he essentially brought all these little provincial tobacco companies under one umbrella, which became the China National Tobacco Corporation. This company is not only an important cigarette producer, it's a key source of revenue for the Chinese state government and has been for a long time. Because certainly historically in many countries, Taxing individuals, taxing companies has been difficult for governments to do as a way to obtain revenue. So one common way to obtain revenue is to essentially tax goods that everybody has to buy. And tobacco is frequently one of those around the world. In China, absolutely no exception. The tobacco monopoly has long been a huge source of revenue for the state. And even today, China National Tobacco Corp, the profits and taxes that they pay account for 7% of the revenues of China's central government. Now, just to lend some perspective to that, that's equivalent to China's official defense budget for the year. These are 2022 figures. That's wild. So 7% of China's budget, which has to be in the hundreds of billions, like probably over like $250 billion, is directly tied to revenues generated from selling people in China cigarettes. The figure is actually... $213 billion in 2022 is how much the central government obtained from China tobacco. That's 1.44 trillion RMB. So it's a huge figure by any stretch. Just another way of thinking about this, this is more money than the two most profitable US companies in 2022, Google and Microsoft. If you combined their net income for all of 2022, it's still less than China tobacco's earnings and taxes paid to the government. So it's obviously a very powerful monopoly. How does China tobacco influence policy domestically? Like what are some examples that I know there are many of which you cite in your reporting in which China tobacco undermined like proven methods of reducing tobacco use? I think this is really 
the crux of our article because there's a fundamental conflict of interest in a government owning a cigarette company and also overseeing the public health of its citizens, right? Because in China, more than a million people die every year from tobacco-related illnesses. So I guess that's the other key statistic. That's the other side of the ledger from the $213 billion is you have over a million, potentially as high as 2 million people a year in China who die of tobacco-related illnesses. And the fundamental problem with the way China tobacco operates is that it is a self-regulating monopoly. So the legislation that created China tobacco, we talked about Deng Xiaoping in the early 1980s. A couple years later, they set up what was on paper a distinct entity to regulate the tobacco monopoly. And this was something called the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration. In practice, this regulator is one in the same as China Tobacco. The head of China Tobacco is the director of the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration. It operates out of the same headquarters building in Beijing. The levels of staff at each level, really, it's like they wear two hats. And as one of our sources, an epidemiologist named Ray Yip, told us for the article, this is sort of set up a really unfair playing field. Like It's almost like you're at a soccer match where China Tobacco is both a player and a referee. So in that context, you do have, it seems, some like local governments who see the harm of, say, tobacco use and want to reduce it, so try to enact bans on indoor smoking, right? But yet your article shows how this China tobacco monopoly is able to kind of twist the arm of local government officials to prevent them from enforcing or even enacting bans on indoor smoking. This was really one of the fundamental problems that we saw is that China tobacco, on the one hand, it's a commercial entity, which is, you know, has cigarette factories. And it is also, in addition to producing the cigarettes, it functions very much within the Chinese government like any other government agency does in that it advocates for its own interests. And it does so, including in the realm of public health or what we in the West would think of, of public health. And so we really see this coming into focus, especially starting about 20 years ago when China signed this global tobacco control treaty sort of created under the auspices of the WHO, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which sort of laid out a number of steps that countries around the world were supposed to do to reduce tobacco consumption. And so China becomes a signatory to this. But, you know, even from before the treaty is signed, we see the state tobacco monopoly operating from within the Chinese government, working to fundamentally weaken this tobacco treaty. And then after it's signed to weaken its implementation within China itself. And as you rightly point out, this includes doing things like fighting within the Chinese government against efforts to ban smoking in indoor public places. It includes efforts to make the warning labels on cigarette packages more sort of descriptive and scary. It includes fighting issues like advertising bans, et cetera, et cetera. All, all the ways that you might think of that a government might enact to control tobacco, they've essentially fought against. But the key distinction here is that unlike sort of in the West, where here in the US, we think about, well, the tobacco lobbyists, they're all over to Capitol Hill. 
They're taking congressmen out to dinner. They're waiting in the hallways during meeting rooms. But, you know, while the key meetings are taking place here, literally China tobacco is inside the meeting rooms where these policy decisions are being made. And the head of China tobacco has an official rank within the government, which is equivalent to that of deputy governor of a Mm. province, which in many ways understates their power. But so, you know, as we describe in our article, China Tobacco does all these things like goes out to individual cities to lobby against municipal efforts to pass smoking bans. When the head of China Tobacco comes to meet with a mayor of even a large city within the Chinese government context, it's like a boss coming to talk to his employee. It's a higher ranking official from the tobacco company coming to talk to a lower ranking municipal government official. So I want to talk about the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, because this, as you noted, was a treaty negotiated under the auspices of the World Health Organization that really laid out steps that governments need to take to reduce tobacco use within their countries, really proven steps like banning on indoor smoking, warning labels, advertising restrictions, things like that. And this, you know, was like a contested treaty. You know, at the time, the U.S. administration, the Bush administration, they weren't like hugely into it. Nonetheless, this was negotiated at the World Health Organization. And your article reveals something that I find just totally wild. I've been reporting on the United Nations now for 18 years. I have never heard of what your article reveals in terms of how the Chinese government manipulated the Chinese language version of the treaty to undermine its potency. Can you just tell that story? Because again, my jaw just dropped when I was reading your article on this. This was a super fascinating aspect of the article for us and for my colleagues. I should say we did this reporting in partnership with journalists from Der Spiegel, from the German investigative news agency Paper Trail Media, and from the Chinese language news outlet, Initium Media. But one of the key documents that we were able to obtain was a book, which was actually written by China Tobacco's executives itself. And it's called Research on Counterproposals to the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and Countermeasures to Address Its Impacts on the Chinese Tobacco Industry. So wrap your mind around that lengthy title. But This was essentially like a 400-page book in which the state tobacco monopoly is bragging about the ways it worked to undermine the treaty negotiations of this global framework convention on tobacco control. And the story it tells right from the start is that the tobacco industry was heavily involved in China's delegation to these tobacco control meetings, which you know, there's specific language in the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control that the tobacco industry is not allowed to be part of the policymaking process for any country. And this is sort of one of the key policy agreements that all countries signed up to on this. But here we see that there are executives from China Tobacco that are part of China's official delegation to these talks on the anti-tobacco treaty. They're literally sitting right next to the head of China's delegation at the talks. And they have set up an extensive, essentially, war room back in China to come up with different counterproposals to make the treaty weak in certain respects, but also to turn it to China Tobacco's advantage in all the ways it can, which is kind of something you would expect a 
private tobacco company to do, right? Again, the difference here is that this is happening from within the Chinese government. But to make a long story short, eventually the framework convention on tobacco control, the language in the treaty gets finalized in early 2003. And now I think this is where it gets kind of interesting, right? So as they're drafting this treaty, the drafting is being done in English. And so you have this draft of the treaty in English, the party set about signing on to it. And then what happens is that there's a translation done of the treaty into each of the UN's six languages, or I guess the five other official UN languages, of which Chinese is one of them. Now, what this book by the Chinese tobacco industry details is that an initial draft of the treaty translation was provided by the WHO, and the Chinese delegation at the behest of China Tobacco asked to proofread the Chinese version of this treaty. And so they take the translation of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control back, and it's given to people within the translation department of China Tobacco itself. They suggest a number of changes to the treaty, which are fairly subtle to the layperson, but if you know Chinese, I think they're quite significant, especially if you view this in a legal context. And one of the things they did was in 68 instances, they translated the English word shall to should, right? <laughs> a similar word, but in the legal context, shall and should are different, right? I mean, that's just wild. I mean, you are essentially showing that the Chinese tobacco translators were able to fundamentally alter the text of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control by changing you know, shalls to shoulds in the official Chinese version of the treaty. So the official Chinese version of the treaty is substantially different than, say, the English or the French version. Yes, it's certainly different than the English version. And I'm not a Chinese speaker myself. So as I'm reading these, these passages in this sort of little known book that the Chinese tobacco industry wrote about this, this is sort of jumping off the page to me like, this is impossible that they would be able to get away with this. It just it seems so unlikely that something like this could fly. But I had my Chinese colleagues who worked on this story also review it. And they said, huh, this doesn't look like the translation is right. So what the examination and our reporting partners did was we commissioned an outside translation analysis of the two versions of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which as they exist, the certified true copies that are on the website of the United Nations, the same copies that are on the website of the Secretariat of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. So the professional translator we hired compared them side by side, and he essentially concluded that the treaty had been changed in exactly the ways specified by China Tobacco in its book about this. So where the English version of the treaty says unequivocally, each party shall pass laws banning indoor smoking in public places, the Chinese version says merely, quote, each party should take such an action. And there's actually, there's a delicious quote from the Chinese tobacco industry's book on this subject in which the authors of this book write, quote, the difference of one word produces a strikingly different effect. 
Yeah, and it means that the Chinese government can at once claim that they are adhering to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, while simultaneously not enforcing some of its key strictures. It's really just like a fascinating thing that I had never seen done in any other context before, having you know the official language translation be so fundamentally different from the translation in another language. And you're seeing the results of that in China's persistently high tobacco use compared to other countries. So we took these findings back to the Secretariat of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control in Geneva and asked them about this, you know, and what their knowledge of was this and does the WHO's translation department have knowledge of this. Mind you, these are events that took place 20 years ago. They said they couldn't say for certain exactly who might have been working within the WHO at the time and what they knew about this. But they also pointed out that essentially under international law, both versions of the treaty are equally binding, right? So there isn't one right or wrong treaty because the changed Chinese version, that became the official as ratified treaty. So it's equally as binding as the English treaty that took, you know, six rounds of negotiation among 150 some parties to negotiate in English. Huh. That's fascinating. So, you know, presumably like a U.S. government under the thumb of the tobacco industry could also simultaneously claim that they are adhering to the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and say that we don't need to ban indoor smoking because in the Chinese version, it only says should not shall. That's right. The U.S. isn't a signatory to the FCTC. Correct. I understand with your hypothetical. Yeah, they're a signatory. Yeah, they've never ratified it. But yeah, that, that hypothetical, you know, it's plausible. So I wanted to get back to something you mentioned earlier, which was just how much of a moneymaker the China tobacco selling tobacco products to its citizens is for the Chinese government. But I'm wondering from like a budgetary high level perspective, if you are she and you're looking at the healthcare costs associated with the harms of tobacco use versus the income generated from tobacco revenues, where do you kind of come down on that ledger? If you look at the United States and where things changed in tobacco control, a lot of people would point to the lawsuit that was brought by state attorney generals in the 1990s against the tobacco companies. The reason why state attorney generals ended up playing such a fundamental role in sort of changing the tobacco climate here was that it was state governments who were getting hit with these massive healthcare costs to treat people with lung cancer and heart disease and stroke and all these other illnesses that we know are caused by tobacco use, right? So the incentive for state governments to change things was really compelling. However, in China, the story is quite different, you know, and one of the reasons why is that within China, much of the health care costs are borne by individuals. So in many cases, if you are diagnosed with lung cancer, there isn't a government pot of money or program necessarily that's going to cover many of their citizens. I think there are some for military veterans and some others, but for the lion's share of citizens, that sort of coverage, it just isn't there. And then if you also factor in the fact that healthcare in China is not as expensive as it is in the US and other developed countries, the strictly healthcare cost versus tobacco revenue scale 
it's not as wildly out of balance, certainly, as it is in the United States. There's no doubt that, you know, setting aside the moral problems that selling tobacco causes, there's no doubt that there's still a good economic argument to be made in China that in the long run, the country is better off having fewer smokers, even if it means less tobacco revenue. Now, as a practical matter, I mean, we all have temporal bias. The government now is looking at its balance sheet and says, geez, we got $213 billion last year from tobacco. Like who within the government is saying we should really reduce that amount of money? There are people who are saying that their voices are not very loud. They're not very strong. And from our reporting, they're greatly outweighed by China Tobacco and its allies within the government. Well, Jason, we'll have to leave it there. Absolutely fascinating reporting. Congratulations. It's great. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes of the episode. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm a big fan of your podcast and all the work you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.